Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gautier. Welcome to another episode. We're here at the office of Global Chimica with CEO Ron Lawrence. Ron, how you doing today? I'm good. How about yourself, Justin? You know, it's it's been great. Coming all the way up here to Kingwood has been nice. It's like, you know, because I'm out in Katy. So, it's like you know, the it's, other side of the world. It is, yeah. And But the neat thing about this area and even the woodlands is, you know, you've got the trees and it's a matured community. So it's, it's not just so much of a concrete jungle, which I can appreciate. And then on top of that, the weather lately has been good. We're not in 100 million degrees. So... It's it's been nice. And we haven't had rain for a couple of weeks, so the river's down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We hadn't had any flooded for about two and a half weeks, but we've got some rain coming, so God knows what's gonna happen. But hopefully nothing like we experienced a few weeks ago and then of you know, of course Harvey, but you just never know here. It's something that growing up, you know, at least I never witnessed or was experienced. I'm sure, you know, for all the listeners out there where, you know, you got a couple of Canadians behind the mic here. So, you know, fasten your seatbelts or, you know, go to sleep, <laughs> one of the two, but. Hang you, on to my beer and watch this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, it's, I'm looking forward to having you on and a big shout out to Jose Solis. He's the one who connected us. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, and funny enough, I, you know, I'd asked you how you, how you knew Jose and, you know, we got to babbling about something else. And next thing you know, your CFO walks in here and it's Jose's mom. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's the chances? Yeah. So, there you uh, go. yeah, a family full of brains. That's cool. So, before we get going, I just want to mention this episode's fueled by Perfect Keto. So, whether you're on a keto diet or simply looking for a healthy snack alternative, visit their website at perfectketo.com. They offer information, you know, different, you know, snacks and stuff like that. So, for all you health nuts out there, if you're looking for a healthy alternative, check it out. And if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and do me a huge favor and take a rev- just take a few minutes and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Any feedback is always welcome and appreciated, good or bad. Also, if you feel like you have a great story or an idea for a show, or if you simply have any questions or want to hit me up and grab a coffee, hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm always on there. I've had a lot of listeners lately reach out on LinkedIn and just simply, you know, want to connect and increase their net, you know, their network. And I always love doing that. So for everyone out there who sent me a message thanking me for, you know, the hour of entertainment that I do or <laughs> whatever you want to call it, then again, I appreciate all the feedback and all the people reaching out. So anyways, let's get this thing going, Ron. So tell me a little bit about your background. You, you basically told me the whole story when I came in here, but I'd like to even back up a little further. So you're, you know, good old boy from Edson, Alberta. So why don't you start there and kind of how you grew up and how you really got into the wolf field? Well, sure. My father worked for Hudson Bay Oil and Gas in Canada, which is now since gone, but yeah. started down in Sassford and I was born in Brooks. Okay. And shortly after that, he was transferred to Edson, worked at the Edson gas plant. Spent a couple of years in Fox Creek where he worked at K-Bob yeah. and uh, then back to Edson and, and he left the bay and, and started his own business in, in safety equipment. You know, growing up in oil town, if you will, and, and with lots of friends and, and especially my dad working in the oil business, yeah, it was always interesting to me. And, and I always thought that that's where I was going to end up. Okay. I didn't really know how. Sure. You know, and then then you kind of, you get out on your own. And, and the first thing I did was I started selling really mud supplies or, or mud equipment, mud pump fluid end for national supply okay. in the Edson area, traveling to rigs and and, you know, there's a number of people over time that you you kind of admire what they're doing and what they've done, and, and you kind of work towards that. So sure. I always remember working at a gas station, Esso gas station in Edson, and there was an operator, a young guy, came in every day for gas, and, and we talked about what he was doing in the field, you know, operating oil wells. And I was always intrigued by that, and it was neat that he had a company truck, and he was a young guy. And yeah. I thought, well, that's the path I want to go down. You no know? kidding. So and what was it that, you know, just his story or just kind of kind of the swag he had or yeah. just some of the stories it, he was telling you? He's like, you know, that's pretty intriguing. I want to I want to check that out. Well, I think, you know, I kind of go back fairly simplistic as a high school kid. He had a company truck. That was the first and most important thing. Yeah. He had a good job. He was always obviously making good money. Yeah. He went on to do some pretty good things in the Edson area. Tom Reckenmacher owned uh, PetroCare at one time. And, and so, you know, it was just, that was kind of that first step, if you will. I remember I worked in Lloyd, in Lloydminster for a while. And, and while I was there, I got to know 
know another fella, and, and his name, Alden Heck. Okay. Alden was a Guyberson manager for the area, and, and he was really a neat guy. Uh, he was extremely smart on completion, downhole, and so on, and I always laughed because customers would phone him up and say they want to do something, and, you know, he'd call them out on them, you know, that's no effing smart, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. And they would change the way they were going to do the completion. I thought anybody could talk to a customer like that, you know, that's a neat guy. There again, he had two company vehicles, you know, he had a car and a truck, and I thought, well, uh, there's a the guy I want to be like, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that's uh, so. certainly someone to look up to. I mean, it's funny you mentioned that because most of the time, you know, if we're in oil field sales, you know, we tend to treat our customers with the utmost respect and we talk polite and, you know, I always kind of refer it back to dating. You know, you got to try to just massage the relationship and, you know, mind your P's and Q's. But, you know, I find the folks that have been in the industry for so long that are so confident in what they do and they probably forgot more than what most people know. They're just themselves. And if you don't like it, well, right. they've got more customers and people that understand the value that they bring. And they're, so they're not afraid to tell, you know, the customer, or the client, say, hey, your idea is useless. It's not going to work. And here's why. And so, again, I admire those folks. And it, it takes some bumps and bruises along the way in some years. But, yeah, I could see, you know, certainly someone like that, someone to look up to and say, you know what? Yeah, I'd like to be able to do that one day or, you know, put yourself in their shoes and, you know, walk around with confidence in the cars and just, you know, being in a successful position like that. It's it's certainly something to look up to for sure. Yeah, they're just so comfortable in their own skin, if you will, right? And, yeah, exactly. And, and knowledgeable. I mean, they're not just, you know, he wasn't ignorant, although some people might say he was. He was, But he, he was knew his shit at the end of the right? day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. there's a difference between being cocky and confident. And, That's right. You know, so if you can if you can ride the line there, and, and you know, I think I think people appreciate that. And, and then they trust you because you've probably heard and seen most of everything. So it yeah. makes sense. But anyway, I didn't mean to sidetrack you there. No, no, no. Well... So anyway, that, you know, those were kind of two moments in my history that, that I think, you know, besides, you know, my father and then, and then these two fellas, just really more just interesting characters, if you will, that, that I, I thought, you know, this is the, the business or the industry I want to be in while I was still young. And so. How old were you when you, with the gentleman we were just talking about? Eldon you, Heck? Yeah. 1920. Okay. So, so yeah, at that point you were easily influenced and, that's right. and yeah, you just, yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay. So anyway, you know, I, I carried on selling oil field equipment and, and then I moved along to starting up a couple of, of small oil field supply stores that I sold off and, and from there, got hired by a company called Corod, Highland Corod at the time. It was owned by EVI, and that EVI eventually bought Weatherford, so I was a, a Weatherford employee. But, mm -hmm. but you know, I got into that. The reason I got into it was I really liked what they had. You know, they had a unique technical product that was different than kind of the norm. It seemed to have a really good application where it was used, you know, reducing rod and tubing wear in, in rod-lifted wells. Mm. And so, you know, really caught my interest. And, and then I got into it. And, you know, as timing is, as I got into Provost, going to work for him at a time when, when that area really took off. So, you know, I was kind of a hero based on what was going on. As a good friend of mine would say, it's easy to fly in the wind. You know, any turkey can fly in the wind, right? <laughs> yeah, so, that's uh, a good point. So anyway, uh, there I was. And, and then by then a part of what would become the Weatherford organization. And, wow. And they transferred. You know, I ended up running the Canadian operation of, of Corod for a couple of years before I left. Hmm. And then moved to, to South America to, to run Latin American artificial lift operations inside the Weatherford organization. Gotcha. So was that an opportunity or was that something you kind of saw and you, you chased or what? It was an opportunity. It was a maybe an unfortunate opportunity. The fellow who had mentored me in Canada had first taken that position and then he died of a heart attack shortly after getting there. Oh no. Ron Denny. Uh, Ron was a mentor, a real good friend. And, and then when they when that happened, they came to me and asked me if I would go and take that position and I did, you know, it was, it was an interesting opportunity for, a, you know, a young guy from Edson, Alberta. So <laughs> yeah. I had to go look at the map to see where Venezuela was. Oh yeah. And, no kidding. Uh, huh. ended, I ended up spending 13 years in Venezuela. Wow. All with the same company or? No, I left uh, Weatherford in 04 after a short stint in Singapore, ended up back in, in Venezuela and started a company of my own, Tierra Alta. Okay. With a local partner and, and a couple of ex Weatherford guys that, that came along with me. Interesting. How was it, you know, being in another country as a Canadian? Were you there on a work visa or how does that work? 
just a visa. You know, I don't think they're really a differentiation there from okay. their visas. Gotcha. Know, I, I had a sponsor. and I got gotcha. you. Uh, so there's obviously ways of going around it. To like, sure. and the reason I asked is, you know, starting a business in another country, it's, you know, down here, you know, once you have, you know, there's a few things that you need, but for the most part, it's not too hard. I just didn't know if you, you faced any challenges with that or. No, not really. I mean, you, you know, with a local partner, you had most of your bases covered from. Sure. From, I don't know maybe all of the the business aspects and and we were covering all of the technical side so yeah providing sense. the technology and knowledge and then and then the support and and sales aspects so. yeah yeah cool you know it, it had its own challenges but it had nothing to do with business it had to do with the president at the time and okay we thought it was a good opportunity when we got into it and you know you don't know what's going to happen but i'd say the writing was on the wall early we just didn't read all the signs and by 2007 and 8, we were doing fairly well. And, and then, of course, expropriation started by the government. And, and we weren't expropriated, but we ended up, you know, kind of our business was starting to go down. And then I was able to sell sell the business hmm. to what, a couple different entities. Explain what that means. What did you say? Expropriation? Mean? Yeah. So I don't, the, I don't, I'm not familiar with the term. So, so the government would, if they thought it was of sovereign interest, and that's a pretty vague term for them, they could go in and take away your assets for oh. the benefit of the country. Now, supposedly there was, you know, like they were expropriating land. That was the first thing they were doing Okay, from large wealthy farmers. Okay. Um, supposedly to give it to, you know, the impoverished. Mm-hmm. That's never what happens. Sure. You know, it's, it's some other group that takes it over. And they took over, for example, they took over all the work boats in about 2008 on Lake Maracaibo. And huh. I think it was 2,500 work boats. So all of the companies that had work boats doing all the work in Lake Maracaibo for the, for the oil field. Wow. Um, so the government's just coming and just gov- like point at it and they add it's mine now? It's ours. Holy and, cow. And, and they go through a process where they negotiate a, a purchase price. And I'm sure all the owners got something. They maybe got paper, you know, government paper. Yeah. None of them wanted it. They wanted their businesses. But, sure. But uh, huh. at the end of the day, the government ended up with it all. And then it all starts to fall apart for them because... You know, the private companies can buy parts on the open market. They can fix and repair stuff. And the government has a process, you know, the PDVSA and, and the government of Venezuela, typical national, they have a process. So they didn't know how to buy parts for their boats. So then they were right. robbing parts off of other boats. Pretty soon their fleet's down to 25%. And then you can't service any wells, right? Yeah. So, huh. so the, the production in, in Lake Maracaibo just, you know, tanked. I, I don't even know what it is. Such a sad situation because, you know, as, as you know, from coming into our office, we're partnered with Venezuelans here. And yeah. I feel like I was adopted by the country. A lot of good friends cool. in and from Venezuela. Yeah. And, you know, they, they don't have anything left per se. You know, yeah. It's all been robbed by either the previous government and or the, you know, the current government. And the, the previous one didn't leave them much to steal. So Yeah. Well, no, they've been going through some turmoil as of even recently, right? Well, it just continues to get worse. That's sad. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, we've got, so out in Katy, I'm part of a gym called KTX Fit. And there's a lot of Venezuelans that live in Katy who come to the gym. And yeah, just some of the stories that we hear and, you know, just following them on social media, kind of them, you know, highlighting some of the things, you know, not in a good way, but just kind of sharing what's going on. And it's sad to see it's such a beautiful country and the people are just some of the most, just the nicest down to earth, humble and loving people. It's sad to see might, what they're might be Might be part of their problem. I mean, they're so nice yeah. that they can't fix the problem, you know? Sure. But yeah, we're fairly familiar with Katie's Zuela. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Okay. I, I, yeah, I've heard, I've heard that term before. Yeah. So, but again, you know, it's sad to see. But so you were there and, yeah. and unfortunately the company just kind of started going in well, direction. The company then. was doing all right, but, but, you know, the country was going in the wrong direction. And, and sure. And it, there didn't look to be any end in sight. I mentioned to you earlier, but at towards the end of 2000, or I guess April 2009, I had a kidnapping situation. Yeah, and that's something you can't just, you know, brushly go over here. Let's hear the, sto- well, that, the story that you're that, able to tell. That's the reason I laughed. But Okay, it's, <laughs> so what happened? It's what they call in Spanish a sequester express. Sequester like, express. Sequestra express. Sequestra so, express. Okay. So it was a... Um, <laughs> It was express kidnapping. Okay. I was on my way to a meeting at Petavesa. It was five o'clock in the morning. And I'm driving out of out of Maracaibo on the what they call the number one crosses the lake and 
and there's a gas station. So I pull into the gas station to fill up. You know, it's five o'clock in the morning. My meeting's like at eight o'clock or something. Yeah. So I, my truck had a problem. You know, there was, it was all full service gas stations there, but nobody liked to fill my truck up because it had a problem with the, the fill nozzle wouldn't, you know, wouldn't accept the gas. So it kept kicking it off. And you'd have to hold it. And they didn't want to do that. So I'm standing out there at five o'clock in the morning, daydreaming, filling my truck up. And, and next thing I know in Spanish, I hear a guy behind me ask me for my keys. And he's standing right at my back. And I'm like, what? And I turn around and it was the gas station attendant who was standing there. But as soon as I turned around, the guy behind him pushed him out of the way. And the guy behind him had a gun and he's pointing it at me. He says, oh, you know, my goodness. Dami su javis. So uh, what is that? Give me your keys. Oh, okay. So I, I reach into my pocket. I'm shaken by now. And I, yeah, no I'm kid. handing him my keys. And I'm thinking, well, that was pretty easy. You know, like if he just takes my truck and go. But oh, no, he goes, get in. You know. Oh, man. So there was three of them. And what I hadn't seen is there was a car had pulled up. Three of them got out, had come around the back of my truck. And they were they just come up behind me while I'm standing with my back to them. So I get in the truck and three of them, uh, you know, they finished filling the truck up or, or just took the nozzle out at that time. Yeah. The car is a pilot car. So he takes off and, and we take off in the truck behind them. And, and I'm sitting in the back seat, the guy with the guns in the driver's seat pointing it at me. And then there's a guy beside me and the driver. We're driving through Maracaibo. We're driving fairly fast. The car's maybe a block ahead of us. And he's, they're basically talking on the phone, you know, saying, you know, turn here, go here. Looking, yeah. He's the, he's the pilot car. And we get out of Maracaibo and kind of heading towards the, the Colombian border. And, and I'm thinking, this isn't good, you know. I don't know yeah. what, what's going to happen. So here. what was going through your mind when you were sitting there? Like, were you just... Like, what were you thinking at the time? I don't know if you really have time to think about it. I think I was expressing everything I was thinking. You know, I'm, I'm telling them, you know, or asking them, what's going on? What do you want to do? What do you want? And, yeah. and this is all happening in Spanish. Yeah. And finally, the, the guy with the gun, uh, and they were all young. They were probably, you know, 19, 20 years old. The guy in the passenger seat turns around, looks at me. And remember, he's got a gun pointed at me. He goes, tranquilo, gringo. Yeah. Now the paso contigo. And so he's saying, you know, don't worry. Nothing's going to happen to you. That's easy for you to say. You're the guy with the gun. Yeah, right? no kidding. Jeez. So, so anyway, it actually calmed me down a little bit. You know, just the fact that he said that. Right? Yeah, yeah. And they're asking, you know, what they're doing is the guy beside me, he's taking everything I got, my wallet, you know, watching phones. And, mm-hmm. and it's kind of funny. He's there again, you know, kind of young guys. So I pull out a, you know, Blackberry and the kid next to me grabs and goes, Blackberry, you know, like, Christmas, you know. <laughs> Never seen that. <laughs> oh, then, my God. And then next one was, he, he goes, give me all your gold. So I reach around my neck. I'm wearing a white gold chain and I take it off and I start to hand it to him. And he goes, is that gold? And I'm thinking, I, I just screwed up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I could have kept it. I thought it was silver. But. Oh, no. So we carry on for a while. And then, and then the guy in the driver's seat turns around. And he says, okay, we're going to let you go. Oh, that's good. He said, we're going to stop the truck. You're going to get out as quickly as you can. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to take off. We don't have time to wait for you. So we'll drive a few more minutes. The guy driving the truck just slams on the brakes. And I reach down to open the door. And I, I can't get out because I got child locks on. No, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> he has to get out and walk all the way around and, and open the door out. for me. What a gentleman. <laughs> he, he, was, yeah. he really was. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, I, I forgot one thing just before we stopped. I said, you know, you guys are going to let me out out here. I have no way to get home. I got no money. You got all my money. So there again, the kid with the gun says to the guy that's sitting next to me who's got my wallet, he says, give him 20. So he reaches into my wallet, pulls out a 20. You no know, 20 way. believers and what? hands it to me. <laughs> It's just a bizarre event, you know. Wow. And so they let me go, and then I was able to make my way home. And, yeah, so did and, you hitchhike, or how did you get back? Well, I, I walked a ways, and then I got into, you know, a little community of houses. Yeah. And everybody was looking pretty sheepish as I'm walking through, you know, some yeah. some white guy walking through the neighborhood. <laughs> and, and Dressed up for a meeting in the <laughs> middle of wherever you were. <laughs> oh, so, my gosh. Uh, so up pulls a car, a newer car. I said, hey, you know. Turns out it was a taxi, and he didn't want to pick me up. Yeah. But he did. He finally, I said, I only got 20. I don't know if that'll get me home, but I'd sure like to. So yeah. he, he got me home. That was actually the last time I got robbed that day. So, <laughs> oh my goodness. I get, or in the next 24 hours or whatever, I, I, you know, I get home and kind of get calmed down. And first thing I did is I phoned and canceled both my phones. Yeah. And then I get off to work and phone my partner. And I said, hey, you know, 
this happened this morning and and this is what's happened and and he kind of he's like well you just wait because they're going to call you and negotiate a price to buy your truck back from you oh I no said, well we have a problem he said what's that i said i canceled my phones oh you dumbass you know? no <laughs> <laughs> no i didn't know all the rules about kidnapping right there, yeah right? you didn't study up before getting nobody kidnapped gave that me morning. the book yeah it was like somebody said well didn't you know that's the worst place to get kidnapped is that gas station i said nobody told me that before it happened. <laughs> now i know yeah no kidding jesus <laughs> so anyway i you know that's crazy man you you got off the hook pretty easy i did no so they I, didn't beat you up or anything 18 hours later while well, at, at midnight i get a a phone call at home. It's my secretary. And she says, I just got a call from the police. They have your truck. And they said, if you come down there, you can get your truck back right away. And I said, well, that seems kind of strange to me, but okay, I'll go along with this. And I said, where's the truck at? And they said, well, it's at this, it's called Curva Molina, a part of the city. It's not very good. I said, well, I think they can just keep the truck. So I just left it at that. Yeah. And then the next morning, I went with one of my partner's guys. We went to the police station. There's my truck sitting there. We go in and talk to the policeman. And they said, well, we had to put it into the system. So now you'll just have to wait. And that could be, you know, six months in Venezuela. Oh, man. So that's all right. We leave a couple hours later. He calls me. He said, yeah, the police called. They uh, think they know how to get your truck back to you. So we go back to the police station. And he says, well, you know, it cost us a bunch of money and this and that. No, of course. And you know what they're doing, the shakedown. So I, I don't know what it was. It was... I seem to remember 2000 and I don't know if that was $2,000, but if you come back with this money, you know, at mm -hmm. five o'clock, we'll give you your truck back. So, because we've got to take it out of the system again. Yeah. It wasn't in the system. But anyway, <laughs> right. you know, we go into the bank, we get the money and we go back to the police station at five o'clock and go in and we go into this. The second time we go there, same thing. We go into an office that says lawyer on the door and there's two guys in uniform that are in there and he says, this is the lawyer he's going to negotiate with you and I'm not a part of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we give him the money and we go out to the truck and it won't start. Oh, no. So he said, well, you, I don't know what you do, but you got to get it out of here. I said, well, I'll call a tow truck. So he says, well, I got one. You know, I got a buddy right close. So he phones him and before he get his flip phone closed, the tow truck pulled into the parking lot. So it was, it was set up. Oh, right? yeah. It, so it was all set he up. He loads yeah. the truck up. He loads my Explorer up, takes it to my apartment, drops it in the parking lot. As he's backing it off, he says, hey, just hop in there. I think I, I think I see something. So he crawls underneath and does something, and I get in. It starts up. I back off no. and pull it into the thing, gave him $200. So that was the third time I got robbed that day. So Jeez. It was, that, it was after that that I decided that it's time for me to wind down my my activities in Venezuela. <laughs> we, we had a pretty good size operation. You know, we were manufacturing PC pumps. It was probably a $25 million investment. Wow. We had a partnership, 50-50 partnership Tierelta did with Wood Group ESP. So we had, we had their ESP business in Venezuela. Yeah. And we got wound out of all of that and went over, I moved to Colombia. So people say, so you got kidnapped in Venezuela and moved to Colombia. Yeah. It seems like but, a, the wrong place to go, but. <laughs> but I was, I was married into Colombia. So I, that was the, seemed like the best place to go. And we had some operations over there. So I went to babysit them and yeah. see what the next, next chapter was. No kidding. That's uh, quite the story, Ron. I appreciate you giving us that. That took me through a wild ride there. I w Again, you got off pretty light, but nonetheless, it, I'm sure you were shitting your pants there pretty good when, you, when it first happened. We so. had, you know, when I was at Weatherford, our drilling division in, in Columbia had a guy kidnapped for 22 months. What? So, you know, so when you're first going away from the gas station in the backseat of a car, you're thinking, how long is this going to last? Holy cow. But, That's uh, insane. Well, I'm glad you're here with me today. Yeah. I mean, it yeah, could have me turned too. out a lot worse. Yeah. <laughs> So let's fast forward a little yep. bit. You're here now in Houston. You started a company. You know, tell us about Global Chemica and, and kind of what you guys do and you know, where you add value to the marketplace. Well, th this will intertwine a little bit with Venezuela. So okay. just going back when I had Tier Alta in Venezuela, we met with a group that we thought we could work with that, you know, manufacture products for reducing viscosity of heavy oil. Okay. And that was important to us from a PC pump standpoint. And so... I met with the inventor and his partner, and we looked at the products, we looked at the opportunity, but they at the same time as us were, you know, they were just real nervous about Venezuela. So we really never got anything started then. And we, we, we maintained our contact, we talked about different opportunities. They never did anything, we didn't 
you know, we didn't find anything else until 2014. I had moved here in 2013. We started a coiled rod plant and line tubing business known here as Lightning Production Services. Gotcha. Um, I'm not involved at all in, in day-to-day operations there. My partner, LJ Gilead, is the president of that group, but but provide my input. And, and of course, my background was all coiled rods, so that was kind of what I brought to the table originally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what happened in 13 and 14, or as 14 progressed, you know, and things weren't weren't going that well, we decided to look at some other opportunities. And, and the one that was seemed kind of right in my face was as I was traveling around looking to, to sell coiled rod and line tubing, was all the paraffin issues that were existing in, in West Texas and South Texas more than anything. Okay. And so reached back out to the my buddies, if you will, in Venezuela and, you know, asked them about their, their chemistries for that application because what they're doing in heavy oil is breaking down asphaltines and long-chain hydrocarbons, which is the same that you need to do in light oil where you have paraffin problems as well. So hmm. we talked about it. We brought them up. We made a, you know, kind of a small batch, you know, set up a real temporary facility, made a small batch, went to the field and tested the product and proved that we could eliminate the paraffin issues in these wells. Hmm. And so that was kind of the start of what is now Global Chemica here. Global Chemica originally started in Venezuela in the early 2000s, but a U.S. presence was started in, in 2014. Cool. And, you know, it's a reacted product, proprietary technology that's patented. And, and, and so what Very we did cool. is we, we set up the manufacturing in the same location as our other manufacturing in, in Numble. And started manufacturing product, kind of low, small scale. We had some opportunities throughout kind of south and west Texas and up into Canada mm-hmm. and started to fill those market niches, if you will, and, you know, just continued to grow our market share, if you will. So we're servicing, we're really, I guess, servicing wells or, you know, pumping chemical into wells from from northern or northeastern British Columbia yep. through the Gulf of Mexico in the North America. Nice. We have, you know, quite a bit of operation in West Texas and really our fastest growing area would probably be the Gulf of Mexico. Interesting. Offshore yeah. work. Yeah. Okay. And I think as as you mentioned earlier, you said, well, I've never seen your name, but we brand label everything. So mm-hmm. most of our product in the field that people might be using that don't know it's ours is probably buying it from a distributor that that has it brand labeled to their own product. Gotcha. We ended up, so we've, we've ended up with really three products in the hydrocarbon treatment area or, or hydrocarbon area, which is a light oil treatment product, which was really a spin-off of the original product. It's slightly different, all the same components, but a little bit different, just attacks the paraffin in light oil better than the, the old heavy oil version did. Right. We have a heavy oil version. Of course, we were, you know, we were planning on a, a startup in Canada, but of course, Canada is still hard hit. But the last, I'd say the last nine or 12 months, we've seen a real uptick on activity in the heavy oil side where you know, people are reactivating wells and doing a little bit of work. So, so we're, you know, we're kind of focused on, on trying to drive that business in the right direction. We think we know that, that we have a real good impact on kind of stimulating tired old heavy oil wells and, and getting them to produce better. Interesting. Um, good. And then kind of our next step is, is we've been doing a lot of work around SAGD efforts. Ah. And, and so that's coming along. Cool. What kind of technology are you applying with that? Well, just our, our heavy oil uh, okay, so this chemistry. A lot of the similar yeah. challenges that you face there, you're able to apply the solutions up to the SAGD stuff. That's right. Okay. Well, huh. so so if we go... You know, the problem today is that as you go into, if you look at the SAG-D operations, the heavy oil coming out is highly emulsified with the steam that they've pumped in. Mm-hmm. It's hard to break that emulsion down. So they're, they're spending a lot of money on demulsifiers. Yeah. And then when, when you break it all down, you know, you've liberated a lot of light end from the heat. And so at the back end of that process, they have to put diluents back in to get it into the pipeline. And so the original thought was, well, if we could go into the into the produced fluid side, we could reduce the, the viscosity and eliminate or reduce the amount of diluent required. That's a real challenge because there's not enough time from, of contact time of our chemistry with the oil if you go in, say, at the inlet of the, of the facility mm-hmm. to really do the job by the end of the facility. Yeah. Although they're, they're, they have, you know, depending on how they apply it, they can, they can get there. But if we could go into the injection well, then we really get that time that's required. So going right. into the steam phase, and you know, early concerns were, 
well, will we have any impact from the steam? And we, we've already been into steam wells where we've seen that the, actually the steam kind of enhances, you know, boosts the, the chemistry onto some sort of steroid and, and really makes it work better. So Sure. So we're we're kind of excited about that opportunity. And then, you know, the Gulf of Mexico is, is real interesting because they spend a lot of money on, I don't know, kind of remediation work, you know, trying to keep problems out of the way because they don't have the same luxury as onshore. So, you know, onshore, you get a pig stock, you go cut out a section of pipe and replace it. You can't do that in the Gulf of Mexico. So they got to yeah. make sure they don't do that. And so it's really, it's, you know, a higher critical item. They spend a lot of money on solvents to, to soak lines and, right. and production wells and so on to, to kind of keep it going. And we've had really good luck stimulating wells in the Gulf of Mexico as well as okay. cleaning lines and, and, and keeping lines clean. That's re- our, you know, our chemistry is reactionary, so really should go in ahead of the problem instead of trying to fix the problem after the fact. Yeah. Most of the stuff that's in the market today is designed to fix the problem after it's already been created. So yours is more of a pre-treatment method of being a proactive approach kind of thing? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Huh. yeah you want to you continuously treat the problem to prevent it from occurring yep. because the reaction is permanent. You know, that the change in hydrocarbon distribution really is what contributes to eliminating, you know, crystallization of paraffins and, and accumulation of asphaltines. Interesting. And, and most people focus on how to break it down after it's happened. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So, and then you also mentioned, too, that you guys are sort of getting into the lubricant game, too, right? Yeah, so, you know, it was, it was rather interesting, but we've seen some interesting things in the producing wells. And it kind of started with the coiled rod project where they were having some corrosion issues in, in a, or failures in a, in a coiled rod well. You know, the lightning guys were. And, and so we worked together with them, and we went into the well, and, and what we found is we could reduce peak polish rod load so well what's causing that you know and there's a couple things one is 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 kind of cleaning up the oil that's going into the pump and more importantly the product's got a real natural affinity to steel so it was it was providing a if you will a corrosion inhibition film acting as a lubrication film to Mm. to reduce that load so that was kind of what we studied originally because it was on a coiled rod well some guy told that to said coiled rod well maybe you need to try it on coiled tubing yeah. Right? And no similarities to how you're applying those two technologies, but he was just thinking in the ma- in terms of coil, right? Yeah, yeah. So I started working with the fellow out here at, at Global Tubing in Dayton, and their uh, VP of technology kind of guided us down a path of the the problems that they were seeing and and how we you know how we might contribute to it, and you know a lot of the problems that that the coil operators are are experiencing was really corrosion failures due to bacteria. Okay. And it's not occurring when the coil is, when the, you know, when the fluid's being pumped in the well, mm-hmm. even though they're pumping nasty stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. occurring when the coil is sitting between jobs. And so it was kind of what we looked at. And, you know, that what they do is they do a preventative maintenance, or they think it's preventative, which is, they, you know, they'll pump biocides through the coil yeah. with a pig, thinking that they're going to kill all the bugs. But if you leave one bug behind, you haven't killed any. Right. Yeah. So, so especially on the bottom where the coil's sitting, if there's any fluid in the pipe at all, end up getting corrosion. So then they have those failures, and, and that was kind of where we started. And, and it, it was real interesting because we've had really good success in West Texas with we saw. You know, it, it works like a pipe on pipe. It, it's it's got a good affinity. It doesn't look very good in a test when you do a coefficient of friction. Okay. But it's okay. It's yeah. not great. You know, everybody's trying to sell coefficient of friction. And right. Because that's normally you have that lab data and you show it, you know, you compare it to other lubricants yeah. and, oh, look at our coefficient of friction. It's, you know, Wigs, X versus, yeah. yeah, all the other ones. So, and that's normally how it all starts where you can get it at the rig. But it sounds like it's more, you're getting, you're seeing the results in the field, which is obviously what people want. So. That's right. So, yeah, you know, we had, we had operators, you know, run and coil, you know, a dozen times, take a picture, send it to us and, and. You'd just be surprised how good the coil looks like brand new. Mm. And, you know, same on. So, you know, we did that coil thing. Get a call, you know, get a call last a year ago, May, and at home, and you think it'll work, you know, works on coil. You think it'll work in conventional drilling because somebody out here is having a, a fairly big problem. Mm-hmm. I said, well, you know, all the, all the same characteristics of what it does, I think, should work, but I don't know how it'll work in a mud system. So, mm-hmm. so we went out and, we were on the rig for a week. We we get out there and the first we did the first thing was the same way anybody else 
applies lubricant. They, we dumped a whole bunch of lubricant into the system trying to get the, the volume up, yeah. you know, the percentage up. When we were, it was kind of funny, you know, it was one of those situations where we started pumping in and then their pressure went way down. Yeah. And the guy on the rig was like, you think your lubricant can do that? And I said, wow, I, you know, I, I guess it could, but I, I find it hard to believe. So, yeah. you know, you're kind of thinking it was, but it was, it was a different problem altogether. It just okay. happened right when we started putting the lubricant in. <laughs> yeah. Well, what we found is that rather than pumping, you know, trying to bring a system up to a percentage, which mm-hmm. is really, I think, false, we started pumping on a continuous basis at a low rate. Into so, the suction so you're pit. talking about just injecting it into the suction at a, okay, yeah. At, at a fixed rate. And really, you know, we've tried dosing at first and then, and then where it ended up is today. It's just, just starts at a low rate and stays at a low rate. You, you know, know it's, it's interesting you say that because in the drilling world, you know, you have the rule of thumb, well, let's pump it in sweeps by meaning you add, you know, an isolated amount of volume with maybe six to 8% by volume. And then, you know, the thought is eventually it'll increase that rate, you know, percent by volume, but you know, it kind of offshore a lot of times when you're pumping, you know, on the drilling fluid side of things is, you know, they're set up in a way that you can do, you know, whether it's polymer injection, lubricant injection, and yeah, you inject it right into either like the pump or right into the suction line of the pump. So the fact that the, you know, the operator was allowing you to try different things and realize, you know, just the constant small rate of injection is the best. That's, that's what, you know, we try and, you know, do and then and sell that sort of idea on because the results are there. It's just a little bit harder to manage because then you need a pump and you need this and yeah. you need a little extra equipment. And we, but. We, we ended up building a whole suite of equipment, you know, so we, yeah. had, we had pumps and stands and, and they were fully automated. So a guy yeah. can just go out there and control the, the rate that he's pumping at. Yeah. Usually yeah. it just goes to one rate and stays there. Yeah. We had built some trailers that could do the same thing, you know, so higher volumes, less frequent changes Very cool. and so on. So yeah. I just thought that the delivery of the lubricant into the mud system was really a critical aspect for us to be able to sell it. Yep, big um, time. You know, beside the fact that we, we really have something that's, that's pretty unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I say that, you know, people call me out on it, but I'm saying it's not a lubrication issue, but we are seeing a limit, you know, like we see things like mud pump repairs go down, you know, basically to zero and not zero. It's never zero, sure, but, but, better but way than, down, you know, hmm. we get on rigs. The first thing that happens is they stop changing their swabs, right? Yeah, they don't yeah. have to change swabs anymore. That makes the mud guy real happy. The old company guy says, I don't really care. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But then you, you kind of move down the line and, and we get the comment all the time from the directional drillers that, hey, you know, we're seeing a, you know, significant reduction of stick slip. And so, you know, there's something going on there that that's helping and mm-hmm. conditioning in front of the bit. You know, the, our product is, you know, the molecule, you know, it's modified for the drill lube versus the, the hydrocarbon stuff, but the molecule likes the ground, you know, so yeah. that's not an issue. And, and the fact that, you know, when they pull the drill pipe out of the well, it, it looks perfectly clean. It's, yeah. it's really kind of a neat phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that, that that plays a huge part. If you can keep tools in the ground and the equipment running for longer, that's money in the bank. So, yeah. so you know, we're, we're a pretty small player. We, we have some some neat and niche areas that we play in, and, and you know, the customers that, that use us generally stay with us. Yeah. Of course, we're trying to grow that footprint, and, and you know, we work with distribution, so... You know, it's a little bit dependent on their ability to grow our business as well. So Yeah, yeah. So what would you say, you know, since being here in the U.S., you know, since the downturn and over the last couple of years, what's been your biggest challenge that you've been faced with and that's been inhibiting you guys to scale at a rate that you want to? Or are you pretty happy with the growth you've seen so far? No, I think I kind of pull it back on myself, you know, after 35 years in the business, I never spent any time in the U.S. business. Mm. And so coming here and starting up a business here has been extremely difficult because, I, you know, my partner was giving me a hard time, William, who you met earlier. Yeah. We have a project going on in Africa and we have products, go, you know, all over the world, China, India, wow. Middle East, but all in their infancy. And, and so we're doing a field-wide trial in Africa and the trial's going really well for an operator there. And it's a paraffin issue and, and they have an issue where, the, you know, they can't get their their pro, their oil to the sales point hmm. without it completely plugging up the line. So, so wow. that, that project's going real well. And he's giving me a hard time because he's going like, you know, we can do a 
Holfield trial in Africa, but you can't get anything going on in the U.S. Like <laughs> you know, we have and we have a, sub, a couple of large fields, but they always start with you know one well and then two wells and three and then you know you're ten or fifteen or twenty. Yeah. Instead of you know just taking the whole field at once, where somebody says you know we have a problem, we're going to fix it. Yeah. And that's the way they were there. They had no solution. They've tried everybody. You know, they they've tried all the names that you're familiar with. Yeah. And, yeah. And and nobody could fix the problem. And and so that's. It's real exciting for us. I think it's probably something we bring back here. We we haven't done a very good job of of promoting the technology through two things: the industry forums that are available. You know, I, I struggle with exhibitions. Yeah. But I need to participate, or we need to participate more in some of the SPE and AADE stuff. And I've I've really started this year trying to make an effort. You know, those things were never present where I worked before, so it wasn't yep. like I had the option to to participate. And and I just haven't done it since I got here. So you know, it's interesting you say that because in our industry now, you know, the, if if you're not building your brand or creating awareness around your brand. Even though someone might have some great technology and a lot of wins under their belt, it's easy to become irrelevant. And marketing is extremely important, more so now than ever. And there's unique platforms. I mean, you see people now, they're pushing all their content on LinkedIn and, you know, different social media platforms, podcasting. So, yeah, you know, as a company like you guys, you've got the results. You know, I encourage you guys to sort of not necessarily brag about the wins you're having, but highlight them and expose them to the mass market and what's the easiest way to do that well you know this wonderful thing we call the internet and like the platforms i'm talking about the cost is almost nothing so it's it's and now that you know we're seeing a lot of the younger generation come up you know a lot of the seasoned vets either got squeezed out during the downturn or are close to retirement so it's figuring out a way to get that information in the hands of the younger groups because, you know, it's crazy. I mean, at least in the drilling world, you know, we've got guys in their late 20s or girls in their late 20s, early 30s that are in these positions to buy technology like you're talking about. So, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned is, you know, trying to get in your name out there with, you know, SPE, AADE well, and, and going and, to do these things. It's important. Well, and then, you know, the way that you and I met, right, Jose, I had actually met with him because I'm like, I probably need to do something social media wise. Yeah. And he was, you know, he's the one guy I knew that, you know, was fairly plugged in and, yeah. and I just wanted to get a read from him. And of course he set up this, yeah. this opportunity, but you know, this isn't my comfort zone. My comfort zone is kind of back in my, back in the field or in my office trying to figure out a problem. Right. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and if we're going to, if we're going to expand the, the good word, if you will, try and help more people out, then we've got to get it out there. And so, <laughs> so we're, we're, you know, we're, we're making a conscious effort to, to kind of get us onto the social media platforms as well as, yeah. you know, into the, into the technical forums. Yeah. Well, no, it's, you know, what we're seeing now in sort of the marketing space is it's not only important, you know, conferences to me are, are slowly dying out. There's not as many people attending. You know, it's a lot of students and vendors trying to sell you stuff. But where you make an impact, like you said, is if you, you know, you know, if you write a paper and you attend some of these fluid conferences or drilling conferences, production conferences, and, and then actually, you know, maybe co-author a paper with an operator, that's where you get the biggest win and you can leverage that, you know, throughout the, diff- you know, throughout the market. So, yeah, it's, it's tough because, I mean, the market's flooded, but, you know, if, if folks like yourself are doing, you know, pretty big things out there, yeah, trying to brag about it somehow and, and getting it out there is important. So, but it we, sounds like you're we, doing some unique we, stuff. Uh, I submitted an abstract for the AAD Fluid Symposium in April. Oh, good. So we hope we get accepted. And, and I mean, it's, it's the question of, you know, does co- is coefficient of friction the right measure? Yeah, right. interesting. Well, hopefully, so, uh, I'd yeah. love to read that. Hopefully, one day that if it gets produced, and sure. certainly go from there. And yeah, I'm glad that I was able to get you on here and spread the good word. Is there anything else that you guys are doing that's kind of unique to the industry? Or, I mean, you've covered a pretty good basis there. Well, I think that's you know that's kind of what we're doing. It's uh, yeah, very neat. Who we are. Yeah. No, I love I, the story. I kind of I, I kind of <laughs> chuckle because you know. At the start of this, I told you I'm probably the oldest guy you've been on here, and I wasn't very <laughs> impressed with your response because it took you a while to think about it. <laughs> like, oh no, I had an older guy on. Yeah, well, <laughs> shoot, I, I always shoot you straight, so at least you know that. That's funny. But, but you know, there there was a day when I wanted to go to all those events, right? Yeah. And now I don't want to go to them anymore. Yeah. And you know, 
rather be at home with the family and, and hanging out there than than off spending two or three days with the boys. But, yeah. you know, and I still enjoy that. You know, I'm, a, I'm just an old oil field guy, right? Sure. I, if people know me from any time, they know that I, I worked as hard as I played. Yeah, and, hey, uh, that's important. You... I'm almost played out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you got a, quite a few years under your belt, and hopefully you got someone, you know, in your shadows training up to be that young whippersnapper beating the streets and sure. drumming up business. I met a few of your folks here that work with you. Seems like a great team. So, you know, one question I like to ask is, you know, what do you really truly love about your job and, and what kind of keeps you motivated and, and just to keep grinding and push the limits? Because, I mean, obviously with your success you've had, I mean, you've probably done very well for yourself and but really what keeps you you know going and why do you you know why do you keep doing what you're doing i think you know i have the luxury of of being of participating in coiled sucker rod growth and you know it was a technology that really made an impact certainly on the western canadian marketplace but it but it's made an impact in a number of markets around the world and i you know i got to participate in that and i think you know i, I always work from a standpoint of ideology a little too much so sometimes you know it's like sure. you, you you want th- you just want to i don't know ideally create a better environment right yeah. whether it's a better world i don't know but sure. you know a better environment in the in the workplace i really have enjoyed helping young you know young or old i guess but you know young sales or young engineers or young field people kind of grow up and create opportunities for themselves. Yeah. And and I, I did that a lot with Venezuelans, almost to, to the point I feel I may have trafficked them, you know. <laughs> like, you know, you got them opportunities to get out of Venezuela and they that's took awesome. it. That's right? awesome. They, yeah. They're all over the world. And, and I think that's real exciting. And that, I think that's what motivates me. You know, it's like the people that are here, you, you want to create an opportunity mm-hmm. for them. You know, I, I, I always seem to find really good opportunities to chase. And, and this one is no different. You know, I think we have an opportunity to, to really, you know, make a difference in the industry with this technology, this chemistry. You know, our, our backstory, a little bit of the backstory of our partners is, is that they have, a, they have a cancer treatment that they're trying to bring to, to the FDA approval process. Very cool. And seeing that, I think if by doing this business, we help them do that, then it was all worth it at the end of the day. Oh, wow. No, that is extremely cool. Yeah, I love the story and, and just your mindset and helping people, creating opportunities. It seems like you're doing it very selflessly, which, you know, is super admirable. And yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. You know, I'm excited to see where you guys go and hopefully start seeing you blasted all over the internet to uh, see your guys' success and help celebrate your guys' wins too. So one last question I have is, I mean, you probably, you kind of already answered it, but you know, so what's something about yourself that not many people know about? So other than the Venezuela kidnapping, you got any unique hobbies or or anything on the side that you like to do? I don't. Unfortunately, my hobby is working. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, I have a, a bunch of kids and five grandkids and you nice. know, a loving partner at home that I think is is just me. And I think most people who know me probably don't know that I, I'm as much a homebody as I am today because that's not the Ron they know from before. But yeah, certainly nothing out of the usual. I tried... You know, I, I tried to be a golfer, and I'm not. Okay. Uh, I love golfing. Yeah. Well, a guy um, from Canada, did you play hockey at all? or Played hockey. None of the teeth in the front of my mouth are, are mine. Okay. Actually, you know, so. <laughs> well, you got to, you know, I don't know if you, do you ever lace up the old skates or what? Well, I, I haven't in a few years, but I, I just listened to a podcast of yours where you were talking about... Uh, old-timer hockey, yeah, hack and whack. Hack and whack. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We got, I don't know if, you, uh, if you're familiar with the name Charlie Simmers. He used to play in the NHL. Well, he comes out and plays with us, and we've got a good group of guys. So if if you ever feel up to it, it's it's very like it's a beer league. So you come out, yeah. you skate some Timbit circles, and shoot that the net a few times, and it's all just you know handshakes and beer drinking. So if you're ever interested, we'd love to have you come out. Uh, I'd like to try it. Yeah, no, it's great. <laughs> well, uh, I'll look. come watch first, make sure I'm not going to get myself into trouble. Oh there. no, we've got well, funny enough. So I grew up in BC, so I'm you know I grew up snowboarding, never played hockey in my life so i've probably got about six games of hockey under my belt in my entire life all of which have been here in houston so <laughs> you know if you if you got any time on the ice before this then you're better off than i was we used to when we were at co-rod in canada one of our sales our sales meetings each time were held usually at the uh, coliseum we played hockey yeah no kidding you know, you, all your sales team could play hockey right so, yeah exactly but i kind of laugh because i owned a, a place in tampa and uh, there was an arena by the house. And that was the last time I actually played hockey. 
I've skated since then, but but I went out and played hockey. And when I stepped onto the ice, you know, and very first puck comes to me, I skate down the ice and I scored. And I get back into the dressing room. I went, you know, I'm not a very good hockey player, but I played all my life. Yeah. And get in the dressing room and at that time I still had a silver tooth so the the one kid says to me I knew you were a hockey player you had a silver tooth yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you don't see too many of those around nowadays but you can point them out yeah most of the time it's guys who played puck and got uh, either into a fight or a puck across the mouth so. so so that's probably the one thing that that people don't know about me if you know me now and didn't know me then I used to have a silver tooth for 35 years no way that's and awesome if, how come you if don't you have know it me now? Th- if you know me then and don't know me now then you don't know that I don't have a silver <laughs> tooth so when I run into people I haven't seen in a few years is what happened to the silver tooth no so, kid how come you don't wear it anymore I needed needed to get a root canal when they pulled it out in Venezuela they wouldn't they said they would not put a silver tooth back in I don't know they oh, were no. just that way about it and that's so nice. I've missed it ever since I still have it at home in a jar <laughs> that is pretty funny i like that well look i'd like to take a few moments to tell everyone about our upcoming events hey everyone alex here with the events on deck for november first of all we had our best turnout ever for our latest happy hour in houston with our panel discussion so thanks to everyone who attended and we hope to keep offering you guys value in the future be sure to listen here for any future happy hours. The events on deck for November include OGGN's second Denver happy hour on November 6th from 4 to 6 p.m. The cost of attendance is $20, a portion of which goes to local charities Safe House Denver and Oil Field Helping Hands. On November 12th at Minute Maid Stadium, IBM's Oil Field of Dreams, Data, Digitization, and Disruption. This event is free for all OGGN subscribers. OGGN's Mark LaCour will be doing a live podcast with ExxonMobil and his 2020 oil and gas predictions. On November 12th through 14th is Procurement Week in Sydney, Australia. Our travel partner, BCD Travel, will be sponsoring Day 2 of Procurement Week in Sydney. Day 2 has content focused on the construction, mining, and energy sectors, as well as an indirect procurement leaders forum which encompasses travel. Industry leaders will be discussing value-driven procurement approaches, evolving technologies, and the changing landscape. And drinks are on BCD at the end of the day. The Houston Chapter API Energy Petroleum Club will be meeting on November 12th in Houston. Speaker Shane McElroy will be talking about the sustainability of electric fracturing. We have another free event on deck this month for our subscribers. The Top Coder Innovation Summit will be taking place on November 14th in Houston, Texas. This event is the premier innovation event for industry leaders. You'll have the opportunity to attend panels on innovation and emerging technologies and meet with the YPRO and Top Coder executive teams. Lastly, the Algeria Oil and Gas Summit is happening on November 19th through 21st this year. Alnaft will be sharing onshore and offshore updates for Africa's leading gas producer and opportunities for independent oil and gas companies. And don't forget, if you guys would like to receive these events each month via email, click Get Mark's Monthly Events email link in the show notes of any OGGN podcast. Hope you guys have a great month. Awesome. Thanks. And, you know, we just talked about Hack and Whack, but if there's anyone else out there interested in playing some oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We're doing it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. So hit me up on LinkedIn and I'll feed you the details. And if you're looking to get in shape over the wintertime, visit KTX Fit in Katy, Texas and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. And again, for all the listeners out there, I appreciate all the support and thanks for listening to Oil and Gas Onshore. If you're looking for more info, hit up oilandgasonshore.com. Ron, thanks again for coming on to the show. If you don't mind, I'll put your link to the website on the show notes. That way if people want to click it and check it out. Um, do you mind if I put your LinkedIn? Yeah, go ahead. Go on there, and yeah. and if anyone's looking for more information, are they you know are they welcome to hit you up, or yeah, should they look on the website for my, a sales group? I can give you or, my email, or yeah, well I'll put that in the in the show yeah. notes, and then people can click it and and hit up you know send you an email and go from there. So uh, perfect, it's been an absolute okay. pleasure. So we'll hey, wrap this thing up. Mine. Good, awesome, Ron. Well, look, always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com.